Welcome to the British Home Front in the First World War. This series was recorded at the University of St Andrews in June 2018 to accompany a conference marking the contribution by the peoples of the British Isles to the national war effort. In this set of podcasts, we look at the impact of the war on society and family life. We hear now from Professor Louise Jackson about crime rates and policing. I'm Louise Jackson and I'm a Professor of Modern Social History at the University of Edinburgh. Today I'm going to be talking about the effects of the First World War on crime and policing across the four nations of the United Kingdom. The model of modern policing in the United Kingdom was pretty well established by around 1900. So all parts of the kingdom had police forces. They were arranged on a county, borough or city basis. So each area in England, Wales and Scotland had its local police force. In Ireland, there were only two police forces, the Dublin Metropolitan Police that operated in the city of Dublin itself and the Royal Irish Constabulary that covered all other parts of Ireland. It was initially set up as a colonial military police force. However, by 1900, it was effectively performing the same role as a civilian and civil police force in other parts of the United Kingdom. The outbreak of war in August 1914 raised significant challenges for the police service. Probably the most important one was the effect of losing police officers to the armed forces. A large number of police officers volunteered and signed up during the course of 1914 and 1915, to such an effect that if we look at the Metropolitan Police, a quarter of officers had left the police service within the first year of the war. In Scotland, a third of police officers had signed up by the end of 1916. When conscription was introduced in 1916, the police service was not a reserved occupation, which meant that officers could still be called up and indeed conscripted into the colours. There were quite a lot of tensions between chief constables who wanted to retain good police officers and the requirements of the military who were very keen on police officers because they were often significantly healthier and of better physical build than the rest of the population. In many police forces, the height requirement was 5 foot 10, 5 foot 11 or even 6 foot. And certainly in Scotland, it was known widely that Glasgow City Police Force, for example, were looking for really tall Highlanders to come down and serve in the police. Physical height was seen as a very important component of policing because it established an air of authority over the working class populations of Britain's urban areas. So police officers were seen as very good fighting material. Some kind of a solution was needed. All police leave was cancelled. Requests to retire or to resign from the police service were refused by chief constables. And various workarounds were sought to secure exemptions from service for some police officers. However, this still meant that men were very thin on the ground. So what also happened is that Retired police officers were brought back in to serve as part of what was called the police reserve. Also, quite importantly, huge numbers of men were recruited into the Special Constabulary. The Special Constabulary had been set up shortly before the war as a way to deal with the problems of 
industrial unrest that had broken out in many areas. The special constabulary was effectively a volunteer police force. These were individuals who gave up a few hours of their time every week to participate in policing duties. Across the war period, 122,000 special constables were recruited in England and Wales and a further 16,000 in Scotland. That sounds a huge number and it was something like four times the number of regular officers. These volunteers would often be only serving four hours a week. They didn't have the same kinds of training and experience as regular officers. And it was estimated that in many cases, you probably needed about 10 special constables to cover the work of a regular constable. A really important development during the First World War was the recruitment of women into policing roles for the first time. Most of these were on a voluntary basis. However, the first regular police officer, Edith Smith, was sworn in with powers of arrest in Grantham Police Force in Lincolnshire in 1915. The work that women were performing in policing was highly gender-related. They were there to work with women and children. And for the authorities, this was seen as an initiative that was only a function of wartime. There was also an important moral agenda that shaped the work that women were undertaking. There was a moral panic about what was described at the time as khaki fever. And what was meant by this was the problems of teenage girls in the main flocking to areas in which servicemen were billeted, stationed or passing through. It was seen as necessary to have mature women who had sufficient authority to regulate some of these behaviours. What we see then is the setting up of a voluntary patrol movement by the National Union of Women Workers, women who again gave up a few hours of their week to patrol in pairs in railway stations, parks, streets, open places. They did not have powers of arrest, but effectively what they were doing was warning and advising young women about more appropriate forms of behaviour. In most areas of the country too, the patrols set up girls' clubs to offer organised recreation in the evenings, needlework, country dancing. This was seen as an antidote to khaki fever and the desire to go out in public space and to consort with servicemen. The panic about khaki fever is part of a broader concern about public morality during wartime, and in particular the behaviour of women. Men were fighting at the front line, and it was assumed that women should be behaving appropriately and dutifully at home. There were also considerable concerns about the problem of venereal disease. We forget nowadays that there were no significant cures for venereal disease in the early part of the 20th century. The military authorities were concerned about the fitness of the fighting forces. So the last thing that they wanted them to do was to contract venereal disease. This is one of the reasons that explains why there was what we would see now as a very heavy-handed approach to the behaviours of women in particular. There was effective a sexual double standard in place in that women are seen as the problem that need to be surveyed and regulated in order to protect the bodies of fighting men. This meant that the activities of some of these early women police were controversial and there were debates within the feminist movement about whether they should be doing this or not. However, the early women police officers were beginning to create an important role in relation to something that has become a burning issue today, which is to do with the abuse of children. So another aspect of their wartime roles 
was the taking of statements from women and children in cases of assault and abuse. And in fact, the first woman police officer in Scotland, Emily Miller, was appointed in 1915 with precisely this role. She was in plain clothes. She was working within CID and her brief was to work with women and child victims and to take statements. The recruitment and then conscription of men of fighting age, 18 to 41, into the armed forces, removed from the country, that group of the population who were most likely to offend. Historically, the vast majority of people who were tried for crimes in the country were young men, men in their late teens, 20s, 30s. In England and Wales, prosecutions for serious crimes in the higher courts dropped by 60%, between 1913 and 1916, but the courts were overwhelmingly processing men. There was still an adult male population that was very much part of the home front. Those in reserved occupations, those who were deemed unfit and were exempted on medical grounds, a small number of conscientious objectors. There was a noticeable decline in particular types of offences. It was commented at the time that there was a drop in sexual offences. Although there was an overall drop in serious offences, there were concerns about increases in criminal behaviour by other sectors of the population. The most important one here is that of young people. There was a moral panic about juvenile delinquency during the First World War. From the early months of 1916, the newspapers were commenting on what they called the bad boy problem, boys misbehaving and who appeared to be coming into the juvenile courts in droves. They were accused of what we would now see as very trivial offences cases involving low-level property offences, minor thefts, vandalism. Juveniles were those aged 8 to 16, and in 1917, over 3,000 of those who were brought before the juvenile court in England and Wales were accused of apple scrumping. There was extensive public debate about what might be causing juvenile delinquency. The problem was blamed on absent fathers, because it was fathers who were assumed to be capable of disciplining their sons, mothers who were working and therefore not there to look after their children. There were concerns about disruption to schooling, given that many schools had been commandeered by the army and school hours had been reduced. There were even concerns about the effect of cinema attendance that was seen as demoralising and putting bad ideas into young minds. There was also discussion of the general excitement of war, which was seen as having an effect on young people's behaviour. Asquith was Prime Minister at the time, and his Home Secretary proposed a number of solutions. The most important of these was the expansion of the youth movement, the Boy Scouting movement, youth clubs, lads clubs. He saw these as an important antidote to the bad boy problem. He was concerned that scoutmasters and the organisers of youth clubs had been recruited into the armed forces, and that this was one of the reasons why more boys were misbehaving. As a result, we do see an expansion of the work of youth clubs and a further decline in the activity of the juvenile courts in 1917 was interpreted as a success of this initiative. 
Of course, this was nothing new. The scouting movement had been set up in 1908 by Baden-Powell in response to the male youth problem of the time, the idea that teenage boys had nothing appropriate to fill their time and were hanging out on street corners. So what happens in the First World War is a development and an extension of these concerns. What is really important about the First World War is that government gets involved and effectively rubber stamps the roles of these organisations, sees them as a concerted antidote to juvenile offending, and thus youth organisations become part of a national preventative response to juvenile delinquency. The volume of police work expanded during wartime. This was largely in relation to the Defence of the Realm Acts and Regulations and all the emergency regulations that were put in place. Police officers were told that they needed to inspect and protect vulnerable points such as harbours, ports, viaducts, railway stations, all the points of ingress and exit. This involved a massive surveillance operation. They were also involved in registering aliens, which is a term that was used to talk about immigrant populations or those who'd come from other countries and were resident in the United Kingdom. An important component of their work too was the enforcement of the lighting regulations. There was to be a blackout because of concerns about invasion. Initially, this was to do with invasion by sea. So it was coastal police forces that were instructed to keep close surveillance of the coastline and to ensure that anybody who had a house that was sea-facing dimmed and put out their lights at night. But of course, as we move further into the war and the prospect of aerial bombardment becomes a reality, the blackout affects everybody. Initially, police officers were warning people and advising them that they needed to put their lights out. But after the Zeppelin raids of 1915 and 1916, police officers received instructions that they they really needed to ensure that they prosecuted people who weren't obeying the regulations. For this reason, we see a very significant rise in the activities of magistrates in the lowest courts. So a huge volume of prosecutions under the Defence of the Realm regulations were coming to their attention in 1916 in particular. Although conscription was never in fact enforced in Ireland, there were significant problems with manpower in policing there. The Royal Irish Constabulary lost significant numbers of men to the armed forces through voluntary recruitment. And there was a moratorium in the RIC on resignations and retirements as in other parts of the United Kingdom. The war had a significant impact on Ireland in various ways. The sinking of the Lusitania off the Irish coast in May 1915 created a huge amount of work for the RIC, who had to respond to the situation, sort out casualties, deal with dead bodies, inform relatives, and this kept them occupied for a considerable number of months. The First World War was also used as an opportunity by Sinn Féin, the RSC were very aware that guns might be brought into the country from Germany and regular patrols were organised of the coast during the course of 1915 to 1916. This led to the arrest of Roger Caseman in 1916. 
The war didn't intrude excessively, though, on the experiences of police officers in rural parts of Ireland, and many of them noted a period of calm between the outbreak of war and the Easter Rising of 1916. They were dealing with very low-level types of offences, drunkenness, people not having lights on their bicycles, things like that. In rural areas, they, like other police officers, received all the notifications of the extension of the Defence of the Realm regulations. However, in many cases, they weren't sure what to do with them. They didn't understand the language. They didn't have viaducts or aliens in their area, and they dutifully filed the orders away. Of course, the Easter Rising of 1916 was to rupture this apparent calm There was a week of violence, mostly in Dublin, in which nearly 500 people were killed, including 16 police officers. However, at this point, the RIC themselves were not a specific target. However, there was undoubtedly a very significant shift in attitudes towards the RIC that emerged after the execution of the rebels, because this was deemed to be an overstepping of the activity of the state and an improper use of martial law. The police now came to be seen with suspicion, whereas previously they felt that they had been treated with considerable respect by local populations. A major challenge for policing was civil unrest in England, Wales and Scotland, most notably in relation to the anti-German riots that erupted in major cities in response to the sinking of the Lusitania in 1915. The riots were spontaneous, the police were under significant pressure, the police couldn't cope. In many regards, they left the mobs to do their work. The main duty of the police in this scenario was to defend and protect Germans who were being victimised by the local population. The fact that the police were clearly struggling to cope is probably one of the reasons why internment was introduced subsequently. What were the longer term effects of the First World War on policing? There's two things I want to identify here. Firstly, a major legacy was the employment of women. So although women were sent back to their pre-existing roles at the end of wartime, it was very significant that women had been accorded a role as paid police professionals. And there was no turning back of this tide. After the war, women's organisations in the country continued to lobby for the more extensive use of women in policing, particularly to take statements from women and child victims of assault. The second major legacy was in fact the demoralisation that resulted for the regular police service for male officers. They were working seven day weeks without leave, their pay had slumped, they felt hugely pressurised and challenged. Towards the end of the war, they were attracted to join the police union and there was even a major police strike in London in August 1918. However, what we see at the end of war is a rewarding of the police for the duties that they had performed in wartime and a recognition of the extent that they had gone to. There was a very significant increase in police pay and conditions as a result of a major review in 1919. That was Professor Louise Jackson on crime rates and policing. You have been listening to the British Home Front in the First World War. The podcast series was made possible thanks to the generosity of John Cawthorne and the 1926 Foundation. 
The conference was supported by the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport and the Scottish Government. It was a Chrome Radio production for the University of St Andrews, with music by the pipes and drums of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards. The producer was Katrina Oliphant, with sound design by Chris Sharp. The series editor was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn. In our next podcast, we hear from Dr Jonathan Boff about how Britain financed the war.